and we're going to be in Acts 14. Um, the book of Acts is the story, basically, of how it happened that the Christian faith went from a small Jewish sect in Jerusalem to the worldwide sort of phenomenon that we know it as today. And uh, in my house, Moana is a big deal currently. Love Moana. Big Moana fans. Um, and uh, the world of Moana is a, is a world of gods and demigods like Maui and Tafiti and Taka and uh, Tamatoa is the big crab. If you haven't seen Moana, you need to see it. Uh, Tamatoa sings a great song that my wife said that she thought was overly sexual sounding, but when I heard her say it, I thought she said it was overly sexy sounding. And it really threw me off for a long time as to how she thought this crab song was sexy. Um, but anyway, uh, Maui is, is one of my favorite characters from Moana. He's a demigod, and um, Moana has to sort of take Maui sort of against his will and convince him to do these things on her behalf to restore goodness to the world and find her purpose. And the thing about Maui is that he's a god, but he's so desperate for like human love and acceptance that he does all this stuff to get humans to love him. It's in the sexy crap song, if you want to reference that. Um, and as I was reading uh, the book of Acts this week and thinking about the message, um, I was really struck that we are a lot like Moana. We act a lot like Moana. We sort of sense that we want to take God or the gods and manipulate those gods to get what we need. And we functionally live our lives trying to convince God or whatever higher power that you're aware of to do what we want them to do. And the good news for us tonight as we look at this passage is um, there's something, God offers us something much, much, much better than that quest. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read it. If you want to listen or read along, that'd be great. We read the Bible at RUF um, because we believe it's more than an ancient document. We actually believe that it's God's very words to us tonight. So I think it would be do well to give it our attention. Acts 14. This is the word of the living God. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Amazing. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, which just goes to say that if you talk less, people will think you're more powerful. Just put that out there. Um, <clears throat> so that wasn't funny at all. Um, <laughs> all right, verse 13. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. 
But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of God. So I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to understand it. Uh, Father, thank you so much that we can call you our father tonight. We thank you that, as Bailey said, that we don't come to you trying to convince you to like us or convince you that we're enough, but we can simply rest um, knowing that Jesus has done everything that we need to be fully adopted into your family. And Lord, I thank you for the diversity of uh, faith experiences in the room, the diversity of life experiences. For everyone that's here, Lord, everyone that's here tonight is here because of your intention. And Lord, we thank you for that, that the world is not a random place, but a world that you are working intimately in. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us tonight through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight what I want to do with you is look a bit at what we naturally do when it comes to approaching God or approaching religion or approaching our lives, and then to see what God offers. And what I want to call what we naturally do, I want to call this the insecure dance of the gods, okay? We do an insecure little dance with the gods. Uh, That sounds, anyway, I thought it sounded better on the notes. Um, Paul and Barnabas are these two guys. They're Jewish men. They had come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and uh, they're on the first ever church missions trip. Okay, pretty much all the young the, the young Christian church was around Jerusalem and in the sort of area um, of, of, of Israel in the Near East. And these two guys had gone off to these foreign lands to tell people about Jesus, and they find themselves in this town because they keep getting kicked out of all the towns that they're in, and people want to kill them. And uh, just keep that in mind if you're ever like, interested in going into the ministry. That it feels like that a lot of the time. And uh, they're, they're in this sort of town square, and Paul is preaching a sermon about Jesus. And there's a guy sitting there that comes to the square whose feet don't work. They've never worked. He's never walked. And as Paul's preaching, he gets a sense. I don't know if the guy says something or just Paul is led by God to understand that this man has come to faith in Jesus. It says, it says that he had faith to be made well, or faith to be saved. And uh, I'm going to pull it down. And, uh, and Paul sees that he has faith in Jesus. So what he does is he asks God to do something on this man's outside to show what he's done on his inside. That's what a miracle is. A, a miracle is something that happens outside that shows things that are happening inside. And so he, he tells this man to stand up and God heals this man's body. And essentially what he's saying is, This man has been made well. This man has been healed on the inside in his soul. And God's showing that on the outside of his body. Now, every other place that they had talked about Jesus, the people they were talking to came from a basically Jewish background. So they could say, hey, the Bible says such and such. And those people would go, well, we believe in the Bible. We believe in the Old Testament. Tell us more about what the Bible says. But where they are now in Lystra, they have no background with the Bible whatsoever. And so when they see this miracle, they don't know what to do with it. And they immediately try to put it into their own categories. And what they think is, 
our gods, our pagan gods, and pagan would just mean like not Jewish, not Christian, uh, local gods, have come down to us in human form. And immediately what they think to do is we need to offer a sacrifice and worship these gods. And here's why they want to do that. This guy, Ovid, who was a Roman prophet, not prophet, poet, um, he wrote a myth about Zeus and Hermes. These two, you know, Zeus is sort of the king of the gods and Hermes is the messenger of the gods. That they had come down in this very area at some point, disguised as regular people. And that they had gone around to a thousand homes looking for someone to welcome them into their home and give them a place to stay and give them something to eat. And they had gone to home after home and no one had invited them in and no one had let them in until after they go to a thousand homes, an older couple lets them into their house. And when they come in, they reveal themselves as being gods and they give this couple all these blessings and turn their house into a temple and give them wealth and everything. And then what would they do for the thousand homes that rejected them was they, they basically destroy all those people with a flood. Okay? All you people rejected us and so we destroy you with a flood. And these people were very, very eager, since they were aware of the story, to, you know, if you think the gods are there and you think they're going to wipe out your house if you don't invite them in, a good idea is to throw a gigantic party for them when they get there. Let them know that you're really happy that they're there. Because that's what it's like to dance with the gods. The gods are fickle. The gods need you to do a lot of things and, and be your very best if you want to be in their good graces. And if you're not, if you make a mistake or you behave badly, they may wipe you out. And uh, basically what happens is people will be afraid of the gods. And I want you to, to be thinking about this and think uh, if you see a pattern with this in your own life. Um, you're afraid of what God may or may not do. And so you try uh, to do your best attempt to make them happy. I try to be a, a good boy, a good girl, do what God says, and then if I do what he says, just right, if I give enough devotion, if I pray the right way, if I do the right acts, then he will do what I want him to do. I can manipulate him into doing what I want him to do. And you may be successful, and there's some momentary celebration before you have to get back to working again. Or you may fail, in which case you might be angry at God because he let you down. Or you may be despairing and angry at yourself because you weren't good enough. Let's just... I really do think this is how we work. Let's say something startling happens in your life. Let's say um, you fall in love. Okay? You meet someone, and they're the one, right? Um, or something startlingly bad happens. Like you know someone, they get sick. Someone, a loved one, they become sick, or they become very hurt in some way. And you jump into action to try and please the gods. Um, with, the, with the person that you just met, maybe you get a part-time job, you start learning how to manage your money better, you start saving up some money because you're trying to get things right for the, for the future, right? You want to do well. You start allowing your physical relationship to progress a little bit farther than you're really comfortable with, but you really want him to stay. You don't want him to go. You want to do things right so that it works out. Uh, maybe with your friend that, that's sick, uh, you start praying morning and evening for them. You get a small group together and pray for this person to get better. Uh, you start going to church, you start going to RUF, start doing the right way. And in the end, maybe the relationship pays off, right? Maybe it works out, they're the one, you guys get married. Um, uh, maybe your friend makes a surprising, miraculous recovery, and things go well. 
Um, then there's tremendous pressure, right, to keep it up. Because you have a sense that because I did things the right way, that's why these good things have happened to me. And so you have pressure and it begins to wear on you and becomes very tiresome to you and burdensome to you. Or maybe a breakup happens. It doesn't work out. And you begin to think, what did I do wrong? You start going back over all the things, the acts of devotion. You tried to be a good boy, a good girl. You tried to do things just right. Why wasn't I enough for them? What did I do? Or maybe they never get better. Your friend, your loved one never gets better. Um, And you become angry with God. Where were you? I prayed. I laid hands on them. Nothing ever happened. Um, Because, so then you get angry that God failed you. It was supposed to be that if you did the right things, he was there. He did what you needed him to do. Or you despair because you didn't perform well enough. This dance is part of our life every single day. And the Bible's pretty honest with us that that's what comes naturally to us when we think about connecting with God. But not even just connecting with God. Back in the day, in, the Greeks called uh, these gods Zeus and Hermes, right? But like, you know, the, the Romans had different names for them. They called them Jupiter and Mercury. Um, we had the same gods, but we just like, we don't like fancy names anymore. I prefer Jupiter and Mercury. Those were, those were nice. Because now... We just call them comfort, uh, success, beauty, intimacy, safety. And those are the gods that we feel that we have to placate at all times so that things will go well for us. And in the American South, actually, the, the world that a lot of you guys grew up in, sometimes those same gods, comfort, safety, intimacy, we call the, that God Jesus sometimes. We just put Jesus' name. We'll, we'll call him Jesus uh, we'll call that one the God of the Bible. But really what we're trying to do is get this fickle God to do what we want them to do. And when they don't, we get hurt or we despair. They're all like pagan deities, and no matter how hard we try, they seem to elude us. And it keeps us in an insecure relationship with ourselves, an insecure relationship with those around us, and an insecure relationship with God, because you never measure up. And if you're honest, God never meets your expectations for what you want them to do. A friend of mine that lives in Greenville, North Carolina, because I have no idea why people live in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, it doesn't seem like the world's happiest place, but Chris, oh Chris, we have some, some representative. Would you agree with that sentiment? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, he pastors a church there. His name's Todd. Okay. Um, sorry. So, somebody earlier, was I, I was talking to somebody in Asheville, and they're like, yeah, my son lives, he lives up near Boone. He lives in uh, uh, Norm. I was like, Norm? I was like, Todd? And she was like, yeah, 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 it wasn't Todd. Todd. Um, that, one was, that one was free. Um, anyway, Todd in Greenville, he writes these anti-psalms. And uh, they're, they're like the psalms, but they're the opposite of what the psalm would say. And uh, this one is anti-psalm 23. If you, if you know Psalm 23, it's the one that like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down, all that. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You guys know that one. If you ever played football, you've probably heard this one before. And uh, this is what he says. He says, the approval of others is my shepherd. I shall always be in want. There is no nourishment, never enough. Anxiety and performance are my lot. My soul is exhausted. I must constantly be my best self for my name's sake. When I walk through difficulty, I must be better. There is only fear of being found out, for I am utterly alone. Your approval and applause last as long as our eye contact. The need for approval prepares me as a feast for my enemies. I have no security, no abundance, 
I am left to chase a moving target all the days of my life, and I shall seek to justify my existence until I die and am forgotten. Um, That's a pretty honest confession of what it looks like to chase comfort. Um, And if you're here tonight and you're tired of doing the insecure dance with the gods, I have really great news for you tonight. Because the God, the living God, the true, the one and true God is not at all like the gods that we have this insecure dance with. And I have good news for those of you that are tired of the gods. Paul and Barnabas find out that these people are going to sacrifice to them. And they run out, they tear their clothes, which means that like some kind of heresy is going on that they're really upset about. And they run out to them and they stop them and they try their best to disrupt this dance with the gods. And look what they say in verse 15. Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. And this is the same good news for you tonight. Um, That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Because... The gods are worthless, but the living God is powerful. Uh, I want to tell you how. If you continue on in verse 15, it says, um, We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Um, Paul says, look, the gods that you're chasing, he says they're vain. And what that word means is that they're worthless. It's like money that won't spend anywhere. They literally can do nothing for you because these gods do not actually exist. They are merely figments of your imagination. They can do nothing and they're literally of no use to you. If you want comfort and you chase comfort, it will always elude you. But what Paul is saying is if you get God, he will give you comfort as well. If you chase intimacy, it will always elude you. But if you chase God, he will give you intimacy and beauty and success and purpose and intentionality. Because the God of the Bible, the living God, is the one who created everything. And he created you. And that means this. If God created the world and he created you, then your life has purpose and intentionality. And the things that happen in your life are not just a series of random events. I was watching a National Geographic documentary filmed about 10 years ago uh, on North Korea. And uh, it was a documentary about an eye doctor who was um, doing cataract surgery in North Korea. And uh, in most countries where there's healthcare, cataracts never get bad enough for people to be blind, okay? especially not young people, because they're pretty easily treated. But in, uh, in North Korea, the, the regime, the Kim regime in North Korea, is so oppressive to its own people um, that uh, there's rampant malnutrition and a lack of um, access to health care, and there's terrible uh, malnourishment there. And the government has resources, but they keep it from their people. They use it for the, for the Kim family and for their you know, building rockets and stuff. And so this, uh, this doctor does surgery for 1,000 people for free to remove their cataracts. Most of these people had not seen for at least a bunch of years. They've been totally blind. And uh, they're in this great hall. There's about a thousand people. And uh, they all have these bandages on their eyes. And the doctor goes to them one by one and removes the bandages from their eyes and says, can you see? And it's amazing because every single one, when they pull the bandages off their eyes, they say, I can see. And immediately what they do is like in the front of the room are two big pictures of Kim Jong-il and his father, the great leader and the great general. And immediately they bow down to the image of, of, the, of Kim and his son. 
and they give thanks and praise to that image. There's one that's a 23-year-old woman. She'd been blind, completely blind for years. As soon as they come off, her father who's with her says, it's all because of, the great, of our great general. We must bow to our great general for this. We praise you. And everyone praises the picture of the general. There's a 35-year-old woman who was never married because she was blind uh, and had just been in debilitating loneliness because of her blindness. And when she can see, she says to the picture, as she bows down, Great general, I will work harder in the salt mines to get more salt to bring you more happiness. And then there's an old grandmother, and she says, this one slayed me, Great leader, how kind you are to hold an old woman like me in your arms. The picture on the wall had legitimately done nothing for her. Um, Nobody praises the doctor. Nobody thinks the doctor, the one that had actually healed them. And the narrator wonders out loud at the end, how many of these people actually have faith in the Kim family and how many of them are just doing it because they're afraid? And what she said stuck with me. She said, here after generations of absolute rule, there may be little difference between true faith and true fear. They credited an image that represented oppression with the thing that healed them and they completely missed the healer. And the living God who created you, who made you, is the one that gives you everything that you need. If you look in 16 and 17, Paul says to them, he says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and with gladness. What he's saying is the living God, the gods are petulant, and may give you what you need if you can earn it. But God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. That's part of God's nature is that he loves to give things, happiness, uh, and, and things that we, that we need, whether those people know him or not. Uh, and the reason why the lives of Christians and non-Christians look so similar in the fact that like they both get raises, they both get fired, they both take vacation, they both get cancer, all these things, right? The reason why they look the same is not because God is distant from believers, but because God is intimately involved in all people's lives, whether they know him or not. And that's because God loves people. Um, I put Psalm 8 on your, on your sheet there as well, which I love so much. But the psalmist is writing and he basically says, when I, when I look at the stars and I look at everything that you made and how big it is and how immense it is and how small I am comparison, in comparison... What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. But what does he say? You have crowned him with glory and honor. God is much bigger. He is not able to be manipulated by us. We don't make him do things by proving how devoted we are. Yet he loves us and he gives us good things. So the gods are worthless, but the living God is powerful. And the last point is this, and we'll we'll kind of bring it down for landing on this. The gods are never satisfied. Beauty, intimacy, comfort, all those things. The gods are never satisfied with you. You can never be enough for them. But God is already satisfied. The living God is already satisfied. Look, the gods may or may not respond to you depending on what you need and how well you please them. No matter how much sacrifice you do at the altar of beauty, gravity always wins. Okay. One of my favorite Radiohead songs is a, is a song called uh, Fake Plastic Trees. You should just 
enter the sadness of modern life in the song. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a verse that says, uh, uh, she lives with a broken man, a, a cracked polystyrene man who just crumbles and burns. He used to do surgery for girls in the 80s, but gravity always wins, right? Um, no matter how much we sacrifice to beauty, gravity always wins. No matter how much we do for our gods, we're always insecure with them. They never meet our expectations, and they're never satisfied with us. But the good news tonight is that we have a better story. Because these people in, in Lystra, they had this myth, remember, about how Zeus and Hermes had come to be with them. They weren't too far off. Because the living God, not the God that's fake, but the God that's real, actually did become a human being. He didn't just pretend to be a peasant, but he became an actual human person, a poor person. And he had nowhere to stay. Um, when Jesus' parents, were, his mother was about to give birth to him, this famous at this point, There was nowhere for her to even give birth to her son. No one that would let a a pregnant woman who was about to give birth come in. So he was born in a feed trough. He had no place to lay his head. Uh, His family thought he was nuts. And his friends abandoned him when he needed them the most. Jesus walked through life poor and homeless. This is God himself. And Paul, you know, it's funny. On one day, literally these people are trying to offer sacrifices and worship them. And then like maybe a day later, they, stone, they try to stone Paul to death. Again, a good picture of what it looks like to go into the ministry for those of you that are interested in doing that. Um, because the people in Lystra go, wait, 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 wait. You're not fitting my paradigm for how the gods are supposed to work, and that makes me angry. And I will, I will put you out. The funny thing is that the, the Jewish people that had come along said, yeah, these people don't fit my paradigm for how God's supposed to work either because he's supposed to do what I tell him to do if I do everything right. And so they try to stone him to death. But the same thing happened to Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem on a Sunday and everybody falls down in the street and shouts out how, how much he's the king of Israel. And then on Friday they shout out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him because we don't know what to do because all we know how to do is the dance. Um, but Jesus goes to the cross, he's delivered up to die, he's totally innocent, and with his arms stretched out in death, there's no one there to help him, and he's totally alone. And then when he dies, just to, he doesn't even have like a tomb to go to. Yes, they have to borrow one to put him in. The guy literally had nowhere to go. And amazingly, he overcomes death, he comes back from the grave, he's resurrected to new life, and he shows everybody who he really is. He reveals that he is God. And what does he do in response? Does he wipe out all those people that had rejected him and not given him a place to say no? He says, I was destroyed so that you don't have to be, so that you can find shelter in me from the destruction that you bring on to yourself. And he offers safety to anyone who would take it because false, fake gods always want to consume you and kill you. And Jesus wants to give you rest and safety. And protection. And my last application for you is I want you to ask yourself tonight, no matter who you are, whatever background you're coming from, whether the God you have, the God that you're serving, the one that you're doing the dance with, um, even if you call that God Jesus, is that the living God or is that one that you made up um, so that you could serve and manipulate? And here's some questions to ask to, to, to figure that out. Is your God impossible to please? Um, does he prefer the special and super committed, beautiful people and not ordinary people like you and me?
Is he apt to change his mind on you, leave you out in the cold? Do you have to be worried that he's going to blast you in the end and destroy you? Are you always wondering where you stand with your God? Will he only love you when you're good and beautiful? If that is the case, then you're doing an insecure dance with a God that is not real. But the good news is that Jesus, the true and living God, is inviting you and calling you to turn from that God, to stop chasing it, to turn around and come to him, to a real relationship with himself, the living God who loves you and gave himself for you so that you could be sheltered from the storm. One of my favorite things about living in Boone is that like, it feels very claustrophobic until this time of the year when all the leaves are gone. The leaves have stayed around a long time. They're usually like fall break, it's over. There's like no leaves, they're on the ground. And, uh, but as the leaves fall, you realize that this is a very big and vast place. And there were so many things that were right behind the trees that you never saw, but they were always there all along. And at the end of this passage, Paul comes back and Barnabas comes back to these churches where they've been stoned. And what, he's, what they say is they come back and they tell them the way into the kingdom is through tribulation. And what I want to encourage you with is as tribulation comes into your life and you begin to feel the pain of the things that won't satisfy you anymore and those leaves fall away, may that be an opportunity for us to see what was always there. The living God who loves us and gave himself for us. May he help us to see him even in tribulation. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that uh, we can know you. Um, Not as someone who is petty, who is apt to change their mind, who's waiting for us to do everything right, or someone that we can control. Lord, we can't control you. You do what you want. But the most beautiful reality is that the thing that you want is to love and to bless your people. So Lord, would you help us to do that? Whatever vain, worthless things that we are chasing and serving tonight, Lord, would you uh, show them to our hearts and then show us Jesus so that we would just go, that thing is worthless. I want him. We pray in his name. Just like heaven